sex work has never gone out of business, never faced a recession. Someone has <laughs> got to be purchasing those services. That's like my take on it. I think some of the language helps people feel almost superior to other people by using those terms. So try to make somebody seem less than so they could seem greater too. Don't know the details or you have people who are dealing with You are now listening to another episode of the Kinky Heathen Podcast. Welcome back to the Kinky Heathen Podcast. Let's jump straight into our two kinks. The first one made me laugh. The sin of Gomorrah is another term for oral sex. And spectrophilia is a sexual arousal from seeing themselves in the mirror or reflective service. For as many selfies as people take, it makes me wonder. Let's do an update and let's talk about the show. In today's episode, we'll be finishing the conversation with V. Rowe about a romanticism. Before you listen to this portion, I would suggest highly you listen to the first part for context. Whether you have already listened to part one or not, or even if this is your first episode, I appreciate you for being here. We're leaving off with the rest of her response to my question. What's the difference between her life and being a side person? For me, let me give a disclaimer. I don't use terms like side person or fuck person or friends with benefits. I don't use any of that because I find it sex negative. That's number one. Number two, I find it judgmental. And then number three, I feel like it's language in order to support or really push the heteronormative, mononormative narrative. Just like the last episode, I will be popping in and explaining things a little further, you know, because we got to know what she means. Heteronormative means that we live in a society or a world that is based on the privileged practices and values that assumes that everyone's straight and interested in opposite sex and that they want monogamous relationships. There isn't space for anything that deviates or departs from what's considered norm or normative in the natural world order. Technically, this podcast is out of the realm of heteronormativity. Chew on that thought. Now let's get back to the show. Oh, by when I say privileged practices and values... That means that it's the default. Disclaimer. Y'all heard her. Now, V, what is your opinion? What does it boil down to? Non-monogamy versus monogamy, (laughs) I'm guessing. Or consensual or ethical non-monogamy versus unethical monogamy. Real quick. Ethics versus morals. Both widely and incorrectly used interchangeably, but also still widely debated. Generally, morals are your own internal right and wrong stances. Ethics are the external rules given to you. Let's use your workplace. Remember the code of conduct that you didn't read? Those are the company ethics. The principles of your religious beliefs can also be considered ethics. Morals, or the ideas of right and wrong, dictate when and how the ethics or rules are applied. So it really going to depend on people's perspective. And then there are people who are just going to be on the side thing. I don't care what anybody says. This is what it is. They're just fooling themselves. And I'm okay with that too, because I'm just a person on the interweb, some stranger on the internet. So your comments are not going to affect how I live my life. I know that whatever I say is not going to affect your life. I'm okay with that. Some people will probably do call me a mistress to say I'm having an affair, that I'm a side chick because my partners are in an established relationship, aka married. I really don't care because they're not my people. So... I find my people and that's who I stick with, if that helps. It sounds like you're saying that the difference between a side person and what you're doing is telling the truth. Because if you're ethically 
non-monogamous, that means the people know what you're doing. If you're, and that's what typically what polyamory is. And if you are monogamous and not telling the truth and the person doesn't know, suddenly you're in a parallel relationship, like the two lines on the street, that's, that's parallel. And the person doesn't know about it. That's wrong. And this is not, a, I think it's wrong. It's a wrong because you're lying. There are people that just will not understand. And I get that. I explained it to my mother when I wanted to date a guy that was, anyway, I explained it to my mother using cheese. I said, so you like pepper jack? She was like, yeah. I said, how do you feel about smoked gouda? She was like, it's pretty good. And I said, you eat them, you eat them together? No, not really. Well, do you like them for the same reasons? No. Boom. There you go. That's polyamory. It was a longer conversation. And just to be clear, I come from a religious family, not holier than thou, but still religious. That part, you have to also understand dealing with that portion when it's a very puritanical society that still believes in purity culture, think that really believe in the one in quotes or whatever. However, ironically, they also accept that people cheat. I never thought in a million years I would be talking about this, but it's my time to shine, y'all. Let's talk about purity culture. I, your host. G.R. Heaton was in the purity club at my church as a teen. I even sang I Believe I Can Fly by R. Kelly. You know how awful that is? But I digress. Purity, as most people know it, came from the Christian evangelical churches, the white Christian evangelical churches in the 1990s, where they had young girls pledging abstinence to their fathers and wearing uh, abstinence rings. Now, the question is, did they make the boys promise that? Because some boys wore them, but not all. The responsibility falls to the women in this. We are responsible for the sexual thoughts, feelings, and choices of men. Think of it like in elementary school or in high school, where the girl gets pulled out of class because, you know, her bra strap is showing or the spaghetti strap of her T-shirt, and it's distracting to the boy. So she misses out on class, misses out on the education because he's distracted because he can't control himself, but nothing is ever said to the boy. It extends so much further, but that's what we're talking about. It's gender-based, very strict. Men were the head of the household. They were supposed to be strong, masculine. Women are supposed to be sweet, feminine. But anyway, now you know a little bit about purity culture. I digress. That's the ironic part of it. They have to because you have websites like Ashley Madison where married people purposely look for other people to engage with without their spouse knowing. Sex work has never gone out of business, never faced a recession. Someone has <laughs> got to be purchasing those services. That's like my take on it. I think some of the language helps people feel almost superior to other people by using those terms. So try to make somebody seem less than so they could seem greater too. Don't know the details or you have people who are dealing with some pain and bitterness from past experiences and now they project that on everybody. And no matter what you say, no matter the educational references you give them, they, they stand by what they say. So no matter how many spaces we've been in with monogamous people, you still have people like, that's just a, a legal way to cheat or y'all just looking for a way to cheat. No matter what we say, no matter how we explain it, because in their mindset, it is strict monogamy one-on-one. -on -one. Even if we explain, well, serial monogamy is a thing where you break up with one person, go to the next, break up with the next person, go to the next. Marry one person, divorce them. Marry another person, divorce them. People justify what they want to, and we pretty much let them. <laughs> I happen to agree with you. There was a pastor 
interestingly enough, that said, I don't know where he got it from or if he was even quoting somebody if it came from him. But he said, what if there's no such thing as the one? What if you find someone, love that one person and they become the one? Versus if you say, I'm looking for the one, if this person that doesn't do something you like, then you have to, then apparently they're not the one. So you've got to find another one to make the one. What if the person you choose is the actual one for you? If the one was indeed a thing. And I think that gives some perspective to the argument of there being so many people out there, people wanting to, to be monogamous. Let me give my disclaimer. I am not anti-monogamy. I am not anti-marriage. I am, however, anti-monogamy and anti-marriage for me. <laughs> if you choose to be um, monogamous or if monogamy is your, or monoamory is your um, relationship style, your relationship orientation, I celebrate that for you. If you are able to separate yourself from toxic monogamous or monoamorous concepts, that's even better because of the ownership aspect. That is the ownership and jealousy, like jealousy is a good thing type of deal. Like, unless a, if you, to show that you care for me, I, you need to be jealous when you see me with someone else. Like, that in the ownership thing, that's toxic monogamy. For me, a healthy monogamy is understanding that I'm with this person and this person is an autonomous individual and they're able to navigate their lives in a way. And I am lucky to share space with this person. I make a point to try to be intentional. That said, when monogamous people come for me, I give them some stuff back. <laughs> I can only imagine. We spoke on misconceptions coming from the side person point of view, but can you think of any other misconceptions surrounding a romanticism or pansexuality? I feel like the identities that I feel put me in a the in-between as a person who practices solo polyamory, parallel polyamory, who's aromantic spectrum and pansexual, it just sounds like I'm just not serious about relationships or I have commitment issues. Because someone does not want to be married doesn't mean that they're not wanting or desiring a serious committed relationship. They're just people who marriage via the government recognition is not their thing. When people try to throw in the religious aspect. Not everybody practices the same thing. So it is not important for that to be quote unquote recognized by the church or whatever your place of worship is. For some people, that's not important. They can still navigate those relationships. Just because a person is not in a relationship doesn't automatically make them just friends. That's not true. Usually the misconceptions come from I feel like some type of fear or envy about people and how they are free to design their relationships. But everybody has the power to design their own relationships. It's just that you have to be brave enough to do something different. And then there are some people who like the concepts that we've been programmed or indoctrinated with. And that's great, too. Consenting adults should, you know, be able to do their thing. So that's pretty much my stance. I had a conversation earlier today that spoke about people being so open-minded, positive, quote-unquote, that they leave no room for the people that may be a little curious but are more conservative. To a certain point, we may exist in a vacuum because we so vastly differ from the norm and think that people should be open. I thought that was really interesting. I have a saying, it takes courage, to be honest, in any of your dealings to truly say what you want out of life, whether it be, my favorite color is purple. 
when people still give you green stuff or to speak up to the waiter or to have anything. You must be honest with yourself about what you want. Sometimes people don't foster space for that. They wonder why people don't ever tell them what they want or why they stepped out. Maybe it's because you as their partner weren't open enough or they didn't feel you were open enough or they didn't feel safe enough to come tell you they needed something different or that they were curious or interested in something else. That could be a journey that you two started together. However, now people are having some hurt feelings. Is there anything that you wish that you knew earlier or at the beginning of your journey that you think would have helped you along or could help somebody that may just be discovering this? Weirdly enough, I'm probably going to say no. I think that I had a bit of an advantage. So I started my journey when I was in my 40s. So I feel like the things or feelings that you tend to have in your 20s and 30s, I had already dealt with that. By 40, there's just a certain level of freedom that I felt and that I felt like I, there were just certain things I didn't have to consider or to deal with. I I will say throughout my journey, I have been fortunate in my experiences and the people that I have met or been connected with. So I honestly can say I can't think of anything right now that I'm like, oh, I wish I knew that. Because I'm also a researcher by nature and by trade. Once I heard something, I really dug into it. I had people who gave me the direction and then I was able to get that, glean that important information that I felt put me a little bit ahead of the curve starting out. And then I was already had like certain intersectionality. I was already aging. I was already disabled. At the time, I did identify as heterosexual, so I had to push my way through understanding my sexuality because of the compulsory heterosexualism, what they call compact ideology. And I'm back because she's out here saying words that we don't know yet. Compulsory heterosexuality or compact. It theorizes that heterosexuality is assumed and therefore import enforced upon women by a patriarchal and heteronormative society. Or at least that's what the wiki said, and I think it sounds biased. But it still doesn't tell us what it actually means. Like, details, baby. But first, a little background. In 1980, a person named Adrienne Rich, she was a lesbian, wrote an essay called Compulsory Heterosexuality and the Lesbian Experience. This make this made the word pretty popular, but it still doesn't tell us what it means. Cophead means that little girls are taught, I think conditioned, from early on to believe that heterosexuality is the way to go. Like, that's it. That, like, there's nothing else. Let me clarify. They're taught that you're supposed to like boys. You're supposed to look pretty for boys. You're supposed to want all the things surrounding that, like the makeup, the clothes, and all that. And if you don't want that, something's wrong with you. And when those same girls get older, they question, do I like him? Do I like this? Or am I just supposed to? And those can be really hard questions. Now, this term came out in the 1980s. That was well, it was popularized in the 1980s, which was 40 years ago. And things have changed a little bit. Now people use compet and heteronormative interchangeably. But for the sake of this, let's keep them separate. Compet applies to women in a patriarchal society, so women in a man's world. And heteronorm applies to everyone else in addition to women. So it was, I would say I'm very fortunate. There was one thing that I had wanted to go back to briefly when I talked about not wanting to raise children with anyone. With the blended families of today, you have two parents who had to come together with their different parenting styles and come on one accord with that. And for me, I want 
my partners to be able to navigate that without an additional co-parent to try to do it. Because especially if the couple who are in the blended family were divorced. So then you have those sets of parents. So to me, that's a lot. Um, looking at my, looking at people's different parenting styles, I feel like that would be an incompatibility that just necessarily wasn't important. And as a person who was engaged with my first love and my first adult relationship that was monogamous, he had a son and when we broke up, me and his son was building a relationship and I lost that relationship with his son because I had no blood connection to him. And even after we were broke up, because I still stay in contact with my first love, his son would ask about me. So to me, that's just an added component that I just don't have the bandwidth to do. I break up with someone and now I lose the connection with the children. I couldn't agree with you more, actually, because that is one of the reasons why I refrain from dating fathers because I adore kids and the kids love me. And the possibility of losing that relationship is too devastating for me personally. Adding in the queer component, you know, so what if you're dating the wife and then having to, you know, with the grandparents and the other parents, it becomes a whole thing. So to like back up out of that, I just let people know in the beginning. And it's not like, I don't like your kids, but I do let my partners know I'm okay with not meeting your children. I'm not going to push you to, I want to meet your children. Now, it's okay if I don't meet your children. I understand though, if I come to your house, I will meet your children. And I always want parents to navigate their relationships with their children. Maybe not necessarily new, Holly, but new to having their children meet their partner. You have to see if you're compatible in that way because you have to not only look at people's families, but their professional careers and how all of that plays with non-monogamy and queerness. Also, in all of that, when I talk about the finances part, I have a huge issue with the classism that exists in Black culture. It's really weird, but I understand that in my relationships, I am in the lower income bracket than all of my partners. So when we talk about doing things on a financial scale, how do we approach this? If we go out on a date, who's going to pay for what or who's comfortable paying for what? If we're going to do a trip, what does that look like? So it's like all these conversations and I would just rather do it with my own money versus we've combined finances now it becomes a conversation. And then what if you want to go on trips with your other partners? What if I want to go on a trip with my other partners? It becomes this whole thing. And I, again, I don't have the bandwidth. I think it makes a lot of sense financially. And also when you speak about community, because we do have to consider whether we like it or not, that our personal choices that make us happy may affect or have an effect on other people that surround us. I think people don't consider what their children will see in a lot of ways. I have friends that their parents were into some some more lifestyle type activities when they were children, and but they didn't actually talk to them about it. There wasn't a conversation about what's happening. They just saw the things that the world considered deviant and it created a sense of isolation. It also brought up other more adult ideas in their youth that they, I can't say, shouldn't have been exposed to because everybody parents differently, but they might have could wait a little while. Here's the thing. I think that there's like books out there, material out there by people who live different alternative ways and how they're raising 
families and children. And I think if the adult doesn't make it weird, it won't be weird to the child. We'll take polyamory, for instance. If you don't make it weird that you see your parents interacting affectionately with another person, if you make that seem just as normal as when the two of them are alone, the kids will see that as normal as well. And I put normal in quotes because not even when I... <laughs> so it's a, it's a normalization thing. If you have different friends that you socialize with, you can have age-appropriate conversations and you can be like, this is so-and-so, these people are important in my life, but they don't necessarily have to be the activity, but they know that those people are important in life. And then they won't think anything about it. And then as they get older, they're like, oh, okay. Because it's more, I think it's important for children to know that there are options versus hiding things from them, letting them, don't let them think there's no options. And then they stumble through the stuff that we stumbled through just to find out there were options when they should have just, if they'd known in the, in the beginning. And I think that was the case for all of us, for a lot of us, I should say. As a kid, if I was eight and I knew I didn't want to be married and I knew non-monogamy was a thing, I wouldn't even have looked at a monogamous relationship. I wouldn't even have tried to get in one or tried to conform and just end up in these short-term relationships and then spend X amount of years thinking that I was I may be a commitment quote. And then seeing like therapists and things like that who are very mononormative, having them thinking, oh, maybe you have an issue with commitment. I don't. I'm just not monogamous. <laughs> so to me, it's like a normalization. And then the kids get to have a choice. There are children who grow up in polyamorous households. They're like second, third generation polyamorous and still choose to be monogamous, all because they knew that there were options and that was a choice. And I feel like in comprehensive sex health ed education, they get to learn that. They get to learn that there are different options for your gender expressions. There are different options for your sexual orientation. There are different options for your relationship orientation or your relationship style. And you get to choose that versus no, it's only this way. You're going to stumble all these ways thinking there's something wrong with you. And now you get an adult and you're like, why didn't anybody tell me this? Because it's not that it's bad for children, it's that we are told that anything that is not heteronormative or mononormative is bad for children. When ironically enough, they force us to be heterosexual, which is where the compact comes from. And they force us to be monogamous, but then accuse everybody else of forcing their lifestyle on us. But it's really them. <laughs> That could be a podcast, a, a whole episode in and of itself. Ooh, I tell you, because I grew up, I didn't realize how, quote unquote, privileged and how unique my situation is. I grew up with what is traditional, like the most traditional of traditions. My parents were married before I was born. They met, fell in love, both of them. They've been married over 35 years. They both wanted children and they wanted to put their finances together and, and they didn't have eyes for anybody else. And I didn't realize how rare that was. Even, even growing up, I didn't realize it. I remember being 14. We talked about this the other day. I'm in the driveway and I was in the car crying, asking her. I wasn't gay, never been gay, never, not interested at all. But I remember in the car crying after, would you love me if I was gay? If I like, if I could brought a girl home? I remember, even though it wasn't my life, because I thought it was so important then, they didn't necessarily teach me that it was bad to be, it was bad to be gay. They, they said that it was a sin. 
but it's not like they treated people any differently. They just said, you know, if this is not what we believe, that doesn't mean that we won't associate with you, that we won't go out to dinner with you or whatever. And I figure that's fair looking back at it. Like you said, people realize that they had options as they grew up, but people don't want to address it for fear of what other people may think. And that is where it, you have to be honest, even if you don't think it's in your best interest. I have two more questions for you because we are way over time. This will probably be two episodes. Have you seen or do you know of any good examples of aromanticism in pop culture? I've seen, I think his name is Moses Sumney. He is a singer. I wouldn't say he's an R&B singer or he's a crooner or anything like, like that. But he identifies as a romantic. He was trying to say, am I only worth living if I'm romantically tied to someone? And he's the only person in mainstream, or I'm not even sure if he's considered mainstream now that I think about it, but that's out there that speaks on that because he is, he's a beautiful black man. Whoa, he's fine. I just want to put that out there. That man is fine. <laughs> but he isn't tied to that. He's the only one that's spoken out on it. Do you, or can you think of any other positive examples in pop culture that people may be able to relate to? I know there is another person, another black person that does um, identify as a romantic. I can think of their name but they were also on on a podcast and i was like hey it's another black romantic person i don't even know of anybody else the person that you mentioned is someone new to me that's unfortunate hopefully this podcast people will, will look back on it as one of those things in pop culture and previously i lied i'm sorry i said i had two more questions for you but i actually have first and the third my next question for people that are just identifying in this, how would you suggest they find community? If you're someone listening to the podcast, you never knew aromanticism was a thing or pansexual was a thing. Do you have any idea of where they may look or begin to start looking for a community? Yes. If you are on any social media platform, I would do a search and put in the word aromantic and look at all of the people or groups that come up. That is a, a great way to, to do it. And I would say the same thing for pansexual. I'm on Facebook um, a little bit more. I ended up putting those things in. I follow aromantic pages. I'm in a few aromantic groups. I um, follow pansexual pages. I am in a few pansexual groups. To me, that is your best way to find community. Like I said, just if you're not um, a Facebook person, I'm pretty sure if you pull it up on like Instagram or Twitter or any other platforms that are out there, like I said, and just do a, a search, a little search, little icon that they have, and then put those words in and those will come up. People are, this is the point of the show where you get to plug yourself. If you have any blog posts or Twitter or anything, places people can find you, shout them out. There is actually a book that I have a chapter in that probably I'm sure. Uh, be plugging. <laughs> the book is called Changing the Narrative, Black Polyamorous Women's Story by Jay Hawking. And I have a direct link. She came up with this project. She reached out to some of us Black Polyamorous Women, allowed us to include a chapter in a book, and it is available for sale. And it is the only one of its kind. Oh, wow. Would you mind dropping the link? I sure will. 
Yes. And that is actually attached to my Instagram page at B E E underscore R O E is my at on Instagram. And I am Vanilla Rose on Twitter. And it's spelled a little bit different. I can also be found under the row on Facebook. I'm also on Tumblr and FetLife. People, folks, sibs, you heard it here. This was the Kinky Heaton Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Before we end today's episode, I got to plug myself. This is the Kinky Heaton Podcast, as you just heard. And I want to thank you for listening. We're here on Tuesdays as always. Like, comment, subscribe, share, tell folks. If you don't like, if you don't like it, tell me I'm listening. If you do like it, tell me and everybody else, you know, because I can use the boost. Follow me on Instagram, Twitter, you know, all of the, all of the things. All of the interwebs. And that's it. This is the King Keaton Podcast. Oh, and if you want to be a guest, do I know my website? Guest at thekinkyheatonpodcast.com. Or if you just got something to say. Or you can text me at 707-I-M-N-O-I-R-E. That spells I'm Noir. You like it? I know you do. All right. Have a good one. (laughs) 